This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. You've been on the podcast before, but do you just want to tell listeners who you are? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. My name is uh, Emmett Doyle. I'm a local uh, folk musician and singer-songwriter, a previously a member of the anarchist folk band of the Wooden Shoe Ramblers, and uh, I'm a member of Local 68 of the Carpenters Union, and I've uh, had some experience in all sorts of class struggle organizing circles for some years now. And uh, yeah, Rust Belt Ballads is the name of your new album, and yeah. uh, it's great. I've had a chance to listen to it. Do you want to, uh, I mean, you mentioned your previous projects. Do you want to just talk about what went into making this album come together and, you know, what's on the album and then kind of how this compares to the previous mu music, maybe with Wouldn't You Ramblers or other stuff that you've uh, done in the past? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Rust Belt Ballads is kind of the first step in making public this music that I've been writing and singing for friends and in like organizing circles since about my teenage years. Uh, there are songs on here that I wrote more than 10 years ago and I've been singing ever since, like a song about the uh, Afghan war and songs about some stuff that was happening back in 2013. And uh, you know, I grew up with this political folk music tradition from Guthrie and Seeger and McColl and the like and with Irish music, especially Irish rebel songs. Uh, but I never really tried to make a living as an entertainer. So first, I worked in the environmental nonprofit world after college on food justice stuff. I'd gotten involved in that as a kid growing up in a small town near St. Cloud. Uh, then after that, I became a river deckhand. And uh, then after that, a carpenter. And uh, really politically committed myself to the labor movement, uh, to working as police brutality and racism, the Black Lives Matter movement and all that. Uh, so that was kind of the context that my first band, the Wooden Shoe Ramblers, was formed in. Uh, we were playing benefit shows for like the Black Megantic Railroad workers or for uh, anti-fascists or people arrested during uh, water protector actions. And we were a very eclectic band, old time country music, Celtic, but also blues and klezmer and even some like what I would call folk reggae influence because we were uh, a band that had members not only from, you know, the Midwest, but also people with roots in the Afro-Caribbean cultures and uh, people with roots in Eastern Europe. So we were a very global kind of band in that sense. And I think that's reflected in uh, the Wouldn't You Ramblers album, In the Runes They've Left Us, We'll Plant Garden Still, which is which is on Bandcamp. Uh, but the Ramblers broke up a year or two ago and went our separate ways because, uh, you know, we're just four dedicated organizers, revolutionaries. We've all got our own personal and political commitments. Uh, and for me, I found that the music was a big commitment and a big part of my life that I wanted to keep going. Uh, and I write music really freely and easily. Sometimes I'll write a couple songs a week, uh, like a month or two at a time. Uh, right before this interview started, I wrote like two verses of a song uh, just between work and this interview. So <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> and not all of them are great, you know, uh, but if you write a couple hundred songs and, you know, a couple dozen of them might be good enough to sing. Uh, so that's kind of my strategy. Uh, sure. and this album's got 17 of them that I think speak to a lot of the core messages and values that I want to get across, uh, and kind of speak to my musical style. 
And so I chose them uh, to kind of be that first debut uh, as a solo artist. And they're kind of mostly songs that reflect growing up in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, songs about the farm crisis and outsourcing and union busting and what happened to us um, and kind of the decline that I grew up in and then the fight back that people are doing today as well as some of our deeper history in the region. From a technical... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, and then I was going to say, just from a, a musical standpoint, you know, I would say it's it's very much more rooted in a Americana sound, but also a very Celtic sound. Those are kind of the two main influences that it kind of bounces back and forth between. And you, And then you played most of the instruments that you hear on the album, whether... Were, were there anybody else playing on the album as well? Or Yeah, uh, Matty Ernst, who is an instructor at the Center for Irish Music, was also a classmate of mine at CSBSJU, was generous enough to uh, come into the studio and lay down some really great fiddle tracks, uh, as well as some concertina. Uh, so I'm very grateful to Matty for that. And then the guy who owns the studio where we actually recorded, who's another old classmate of mine, Charlie Bruber, um was getting into the music and there was one or two songs that he and I were talking about how much better they would be if we had some bass. And as it turns out, Charlie is just an absolutely rocking bass player and added some really sick bass lines, uh, to uh, a couple songs, like two, two in particular, I can think of that, you know, he just really blew, blew it away on the bass with. So there's a little bit of collaboration in there for sure. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, uh, and then the rest of, uh, anything folks are hearing that's you, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I play around a dozen or so instruments, but you know, when you're a folk musician, it, it gets a little bit like cheating because you know, <laughs> um, I play you know broadly the guitar, the banjo, and the bazooki. But then if you play the bazooki, you can also kind of play the fiddle and the mandolin and the tenor banjo, uh, and you know all the things in that family are kind of related and have similar tunings. Um, so they're not too hard to learn if you if you know the one. Then the banjo. It's most common two tunings like uh, open G and the sawmill tuning are also very similar to certain open tunings on the guitar, like open G and dad, gad and open D. And then the guitar has its own tuning. So really, I, I know three tuning systems <laughs> sure. uh, and then I can play that across a lot of different instruments. Well, I've yeah. heard you play a bunch of different instruments and it all sound really good. So I'm going to I'm going to play something from the album, but I'm going to start out and insert a song here. And this is going to be a song that's not on the album, but it's a great song that you performed live June 4th at Urban Cabin Days. Uh, this one's called Going Across the Mountain. The song has a really interesting backstory. You talked about it when you performed the song, but I wonder if you would just tell us briefly um, about that song uh, before I play it. Yeah, sure. So Going Across the Mountain is a Civil War era partisan song from uh, pro-union fighters in the Appalachians. And it was handed down to us by Frank Prophet, who's the same guy who preserved and handed down to us like songs uh, like uh, Tom Dooley. And, you know, he's a, he's a great treasure of the American folk revival. Now, Frank Prophet claims that it was actually his grandfather who wrote it. And Frank Grant, Frank's grandfather joined the Union forces, but his brother joined the Confederacy. And he wrote this song about going off to the war. And um, it doesn't really become explicit until his final verse. Uh, he's going to give old Jeff Davis a bit of his rifle ball uh, that he's talking about the Civil War and that he's very explicitly on the North side. Uh, so when we took that song in the Wooden Shoe Ramblers and decided to perform it, you know, we were all very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and in police and prison abolition. And I was really involved in workplace organizing 
uh, in a very white, very conservative workplace where a lot of people were very, very, really opposed to the black anti-racist struggle. And we were trying to have conversations to change that. Uh, so a lot of our conversations actually dealt with the history of racial conflict and racial cooperation and interracial class solidarity in this country. Um, and those were kind of the thoughts that were bumping around in our heads when we added this, this final verse to it. Uh, that just makes the, the political message much more clear and that adds a very abolitionist uh, twist to it. And so that's kind of our version of the song that Frank Prophet's grandfather wrote. Yeah, and I think it was just, you know, you had said at the, uh, the live version, I think it's interesting. I mean, they, you know, you said they were joined the Union Army, but really they didn't really officially join the Union Army because there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any like, you know, center where they could go around by them and just like, you know, sign up or whatever. So it was kind of a, they were taking taking things into their their own hands, but on the Union side. Yeah, I think it's likely that Frank's grandfather actually did officially join the Union forces, though, I mean, you'd have to look through the army rolls right. from back then to actually find out. But certainly in big parts of Appalachia and also throughout other parts of the South, um, there were pro-Union partisans who didn't have anywhere to go to join the Union forces, oftentimes who were operating behind Confederate lines because they lived in, in Confederate states but were just unwilling to die in what they saw as a rich man's war to preserve slavery. And, uh, you know, I think we often forget that a big part of how the slaveholders rebellion that was the American civil war ended was it wasn't just the armies of the North and all our industrial capacity coming down and, and crushing, um, the Confederate armies. It was also these rebellions that were spreading like wildfire by working class people, uh, and small farmers all around the South, and especially the actions of enslaved black people who essentially did the first general strike in American history and stopped producing for the war effort and sabotage production for the war effort. And when escaping, often found their way to Union lines and, and did everything they could to assist uh, in the war effort for their own liberation. Uh, W.B. Du Bois writes very powerfully about how black folk weren't simply passively liberated, but liberated themselves. I think that's a very powerful thing to remember. Yeah. And here's the song. When crossed mountain, no fair the on my back and my powder it is dry I'm going across the mountains Chrissy don't you cry well I'm going across the mountain oh fare thee well I'm going across the mountain in my banjo tail Tennessee. 
expect you'll miss me when I'm gone, but I'm going through, and when the war is over, I'll come back to you. I'm going across the mountain, oh, fairly well, I'm going across the mountain, in my banjo town. Going across the mountain, even if I have to crawl, I'm gonna give Jeff Davis a piece of my rifle ball. No slave or no freed man ever done me any harm. I ain't gonna lay my life down for no rich man's cotton farm. I'm going across the mountain, oh, fairly well. I'm going across the mountain, hear my banjo tell. I'm going across the mountain, oh, fairly well, I'm going across the mountain, me and my banjo tail. Now, you said on the show uh, previously that you consider yourself to be an anarchist. Uh, and, you know, how do you think that uh, influences what's in your music? And, you know, specifically, I'm thinking, how is what's on this album different than what one might find on another folk album or might hear in other labor songs at other uh, labor events? Yeah. Well, I uh, definitely you know my politics have influenced my music and, and vice versa. My, my music has really influenced my politics. Uh, I listened to Guthrie and Seeger and uh, Irish rebel music as a kid, and that really opened the door for me to explore anti-colonial themes, uh, working class struggle and revolution, including asking my parents about their own experiences and their politics that were the reason why we had this music in our house. Uh, my, my parents were, um, you know, peaceniks, anti-war protesters back in the the 1960s and were involved sort of in the radical movement. My, my grandparents were uh, members of the Catholic worker movement, which is basically what you became back in the day if you were uh, more or less an anarchist or a communist, but were too Catholic to actually be one. Uh, so they were very sure. Catholic and they were also very <laughs> radical. Um, and so that, that music really for me opened a doorway to exploring these own histories of struggle in, in my family and in my community. Um, that people often, you know, they let the, they let these things lie buried and not really disturb them. And and so that's kind of the point of musical agitation is it brings these things to the surface. That's that's what agitation means. Um, yeah, as that said, you know, political folk music's never really been the dominant strain in folk music. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Our our roots ju- music genres are mostly concerned with the day to day of life and work, and not always getting so explicitly political, even if you know the personal is political. Uh, but I think that in recent years, our music scenes really swung towards more apolitical folk music, usually with like a really indie pop, indie rock influenced sound, a lot of introspective lyrics. And so my music is definitely more stridently political and it's very lyrically driven first and foremost. And then on the other hand, we've had this recent uh, surge of attention towards kind of country music that's political, but in a very right wing way. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason Aldean's try that in a small town. And of course, he's not from a small town. I actually am. Right. Um, Or uh, Anthony Oliver's uh, Rich Men North of Richmond. You know, that's that's blowing up the charts right now. Um. And so definitely I would say that I actually address a lot of similar themes uh, to, you know, what someone like Anthony Oliver might, might address, but I don't have maybe the same conservative and conspiratorial worldview mm-hmm. that's popular among a lot of, uh, a lot of folks these days. Uh, rather I, I would take a more radical worldview and really try to get to the roots of things, which is the systemic issues. Um, you know, I think that how specifically the fact that I'm an anarchist um, impacts the music is is kind of interesting because you know most most of political folk music, I, I would say our tradition is kind of founded by Guthrie and Seeger and McColl, and they were all either uh, members or fellow travelers of the Communist Party mm-hmm. uh, at their time, and uh i think since the fall of the old left kind of and the rise of the new left in the 1960s the political folk genre has been much more politically diverse among anarchists you have people like leslie fish and david rovix and like most of the folk punk scene or the riot folk collective with uh people like ryan harvey or evan greer oh and of course there's a lot of anarchist songwriters outside of the english language especially if you're looking at French and Spanish and Italian. There's a lot of really great songwriters, um, some of whose work I've translated, though not, I don't think any of that's in, in this album. <laughs> um, sure. Now, I would say my specifically anarchist politics really show through in how I approach labor struggle in the album. I have a very right. rank and file approach. I'm very skeptical of the role of staff and professional layers in the unions. Um, that is to say, you know, not, not bashing your listeners who are union staff, but there's, there's a structural issue you know, at play that, that if you're a militant rank and file worker, you will eventually run into the constraints of what, um, of what the union's interests as an institution are versus what the workers' interests are is actually sometimes a little bit different. And, um, so the strikes I mention in the album, and I have like four different strike ballads in the album, you know, there's the 1934 strike, which saw a radical local, have to defy their national union, the Teamsters and Daniel Tobin. Um, a very similar thing happened with the P9 strike in Austin in the 1980s, uh, where the UFCW local had to defy their international. Uh, the John Deere strike also saw rank and file membership rejecting concessionary deals by their officers and pushing for and winning a better contract. That was during Striketober recently, and that's also got a got a song on the album uh the 1992 drywall workers strike which happened in my own union the carpenters was actually organized by workers outside of the union who then had to come to the union and demand to be organized after they basically already organized themselves and they led a very militant strike far more militant than a strike that you would expect to see led by nice. some of the officers of the building trades uh and so i think extremely rank and file and militant um 
labor struggle politics is apparent in the album. Uh, I think there's also a general anti-state politics throughout the songs. There's a moonshining ballad on there, for example. Uh, and that's obviously very anti-cop. It's anti-the feds. Uh, it talks about having no joy for the alphabet boys coming here to glean. You know, these right. are the kind of songs that, you know, uh, a more right-wing leaning uh, redneck figure might kind of might kind of dig. Uh, but you get more into the politics and you actually see that it's an anti-statism coming from a working class perspective and opposing that that state violence and the state's attempts to to tax and profit off, the la- off of labor of others to fund their cops and their wars. And I think also like in the the way I approach internationalism in the in the album too. Um, there's one song on there for the prisoners in Belarus to the tune of a Belarusian folk song. Now I've done uh, solidarity work for people in the former Soviet bloc. I have friends and in-laws in that part of the world, and sure. part of my politics is I can't abstain from solidarity with them. And there are other people in the broader left who are you know more hesitant to show solidarity to workers in countries whose ruling class is opposed to the ruling class of our country. But I, I kind of just see them all as one global ruling class with different factions. And uh, I think that's that's a, a fairly anarchist way, not anarchist ex- exclusive, but it's a fairly anarchist way of, uh, of viewing some of these issues. And I think that shows through in the album. Sure. I kind of I have a little follow-up question. I'm kind of curious. Uh, you mentioned that your uh, politics informs your music but also like the music informs your politics to some extent i'd be interested are there like since you've been more involved in uh you know like kind of researching the history or looking at global struggles and stuff like that is there something you can point to as far as like a place where you've kind of like expanded or maybe changed your perspective based on uh different music or uh different musicians or things like that that you've come in contact with um, yeah, you know, honestly, um, listening to Italian anarchist music really got me interested in kind of the years of lead and, uh, the autonomous movement and the workers movements, which, which were officially, uh, autonomous Marxist movements. But among anarchists, we have a joke, you know, what do you call an anarchist with a grad degree? Right. An, an autonomous, <laughs> an autonomous Marxist, you know? Sure. <laughs> um, so I definitely got, got interested in that. Uh, in part through there. Uh, I probably wouldn't have ever heard of Makhno and the Makhnovshina in Ukraine if uh, I hadn't heard the song Makhnovshina. Um, So definitely, I think, like, for people who are interested in uh, radical politics, having songs kind of be signposts to point them towards things to look into, I think, is very useful. And that's something I try to do with my own music. You mentioned it already. My favorite song in the album is the 1934 Strike song, which on the album includes Cooley's Reel and Congress Reel. And um, now, you, since you said I should, I'm going to play the version from the album. I'm going to insert the version from the album here. And of course, this song commemorates the 1934 Teamster Strike in Minneapolis, which many say is what transformed Minneapolis into a union town. And here's the song. Summer's been a hard one 
Now walking on the line and the kitchen and infirmary, they've also stood the time. For months now we've been striking, the Teamsters and the rest. For months now we've been striking, but they haven't beat us yet. So rise up for the union, don't give way to gloom. Can't you hear the marching feet? They're beating out their doom. All oh, hear the young ones crying, neither sign nor pine. See the times get better when we hold that picket line When first that I moved out here after serving in the war They said there's work for every hand, you never need be poor But they went and found the stand and asked it work beside the wall There's scarce enough to go around to keep a home at all So rise up for the union, don't give way to blue Can't you hear the marching feet, they're beating out their doom all here Neither sign or pine. See the times get better when we hold that picket line. Remember how last winter Coleman won it fair, and on that day, way last May, we won the market square. Now they got us in the home pens to try to keep us down. They can keep us in the stockade, but they'll never hold the town. So rise up for the union, don't give way to gloom. Hear the marching feet, they're beating out their doom All hear the young ones crying, neither sign or pine See the times get better, behold that picket line Cops as well, who shot down us in Baylor out on the market way. I wish I had a rifle, I would give them all the same. So rise up for the Union, don't give way to gloom. Can't you hear the marching feet? They're beating out their doom. All hear the young ones crying, neither sign or pine. See the times get better when we hold that picket line. Anymore. We'll win ourselves a union town this year of 34 So rise up for the union, don't give way to gloom Can't you hear the marching feet, they're beating out their doom All hear the young ones crying, neither sign or pine We'll see the times get better when we hold that picket line
that version was from the album, as I mentioned, but you also played it live at Urban Cabin Days and at the 1934 Trucker Strike Memorial Ceremony, which we just had in July. You know, why is it so important that folks don't forget the history of this strike uh, here in the Twin Cities in 1934? Well, the strike uh, taught us how to fight and how to win. Um, yeah, I was I was playing there. It was a big honor for me to play there because um, I, I had also played there when the plaque was installed and I recorded uh, the whole album actually in that building. That building is, is where the studio that the album was recorded is is located. Um just happens to be where my where my friend has his studio. <laughs> nice. Um so it was it was very cool to be able to play it there. Um and also before I get too too much into the Team Strike itself, I want to say uh as regards, you know, permission to play the song, um everything on the album is Creative Commons licensed. Uh so that's something that people interested in the album um you know should probably know if if you hear any song on the album and you want to cover it, you want to play it, you want to share it around, you want to use it in other media, you're free to do so. The only thing I demand is attribution. Uh, so, you know, go ahead. That's part of building the commons and refusing the enclosure of, of our cultural commons that, you know, again, the music and the politics kind of go hand in hand with this. Um, but back to the strike. I, I, agree, I agree with you, Emmett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure. definitely in favor of, uh, you know, yeah. And everything I do is uh, the same. Yeah. So back to the strike. Um, you know, the Teamster strike is important. It's when Minneapolis workers, um, yeah, learned how to take on the bosses and win. For many years prior to that, every attempt to organize a union in Minneapolis was beaten back by the Citizens Alliance, this, um, you know, vigilante force of, you know, spies and goons and bosses that just relentlessly worked to break apart any attempt to organize a union. Uh, and nowadays the law binds labor with all sorts of rules meant to hobble us and stop us from striking effectively, like stopping hard picket lines or secondary strikes. And back then it was much more open. The cops and the bosses skipped all this pageantry about law and just got straight to the violence. Cause when you, when you get down to it, laws are really just stories that the state tells us about when violence is legitimate. And Back then, rather than, you know, beating around the bush, they just got directly to the beating. So it was it was a very violent time. Um, and the solution back then was about the same as, as it is now. If we want to strike effectively and we want to have a chance at winning, we have to be willing to uh, break labor law, to break the system that has been put in place to stop us from winning. Um, now, for the Teamsters back then, that meant um, organizing the union. It meant doing the strike and it meant defending their picket lines and holding these hard pickets. Um, and you know, they, they said of the strike that they papered the walls with injunctions. Um, I think that's a really powerful image, no matter how much the state told them, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't strike effectively. They said, well, we're going to anyway, and you can try to stop us. And the state did try to stop them. They tried to right. stop them to the battle of deputies run and they tried to stop them on bloody Friday and they tried to stop them by imprisoning their their leaders and throwing them in, in bullpens at the state fair grounds, and they failed. Um, just because the people in Bauer tell you you can't do something doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you have to be willing to fight them to be able to do it. And I think that's a really important lesson for all of us. Um, today, we need, we need to bring back 
strikes with hard pickets. We need to bring back secondary strikes and boycotts, even if they are illegal. We need to bring back creative direct action on the job site. And we need to be aware that if, if unions do that stuff, we're going to face repression from the state. And we need to have strategies to fight back against that repression and to weather it and to win back our ability to fight and win. Because we've, we're currently three or four decades deep into a capitalist counterattack on workers in this country that has been barely contested. And there have been some heroic stands recently that are starting to turn the tide, but there's so much work that we have left to do. And Absolutely. it's not going to be an easy road. It's going to be a road that's going to involve conflict. It's going to involve more than hurt feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you want to know more about the Teamster Strike and you want to learn some of these lessons uh, firsthand, uh, a great place to start if you're an audiophile, if you're into you know listening to stuff, which obviously your listeners are, uh, Kelly Cable's podcast, uh, I think it's called Mill City Revolt or Mill City Rebellion. Um, of, that's a great those, source. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, if you uh, enjoy a good read, um, Teamster Rebellion by Farrell Dobbs is a great place to start. Uh, and, uh, you know, also check out the Eastside Freedom Library. It has a lot of really great resources, including a board game about the strike. And I'm sure if you meet Peter Ratchliff there, he'd, he'd love to talk with you about it. And if you wouldn't, then sorry, Peter, but I just volunteered you. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know they had a board game there. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really it's really fun. I assume I haven't actually played it, but uh, I saw I saw my friends uh, Linda and uh, Anya playing it once, and they looked like they were having fun. So I assume it's fun. They have good taste. So you can just go there and pull it out and play it, or something? Or I think so. Yeah, I think oh, you can. That's just... kind of cool. Yeah. Well, so yeah, and you're uh, you know the album. Uh, well, by the time this comes out, we'll have come out and you're going to be playing some shows over the long Labor Day weekend. Um, what's officially on the calendar for you at the moment uh, over that weekend? I wish I could say that with certainty. Unfortunately, I am still um, juggling different possibilities with different venues. I thought I had one time nailed down for a show near St. Cloud, but it's looking like I'm going to have to be a little creative with how to schedule that. Sure. Um, ironically, some of the uh, difficulty on my end comes from the fact that I'm also that same weekend giving an organizing training to a group of workers who are trying to organize their workplace. Um, always gets in the way of a lot of things. It's true. Yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good interruption to have though. It's a good operation. Right. To oh yeah. Have. Um, but uh, if you look at edoylemusic.weebly.com, that'll have all of my upcoming shows there. Um. So. You know, if you look on there, you'll see where I'm playing all throughout the Twin Cities. And that is a constantly updated calendar at edoylemusic.weebly.com. Because I'm not going to pay for just edoylemusic.com. I ain't got the money to get rid of the Weebly. So there's a, I actually don't It's a Weebly that's W-E-E-B-L-Y. Is that how you spell Weebly? Yep, W-E-E-B-L-Y. So it's E-D-O-Y-L-E. M-U-S-I-C dot W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. Okay, great. Yeah. I uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, really appreciate you speaking with me, and I really love the album. Um, is there anything else you want to share before you go, or do you want to tell folks specifically where they can find the album? I'm, they yeah. can probably get to it through that Weebly maybe, but maybe not. Uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be uh, on the links section at the Weebly. If you go down, you can find Bandcamp. And uh, then it'll be at emmettdoyle.bandcamp.com. It'll be called Rust Belt Ballads, and you can find it right there. 
Uh, you can buy it for uh, eight bucks. And uh, after I recoup the costs of making this album, any additional profit I'm going to be giving to the Twin Cities Solidarity Network, which is a volunteer network that I helped found and I helped run um, that uh, takes care of grievances for workers who don't have a union to bring their grievance to uh, or to tenants who don't have a tenants union to bring their, their grievance to. So uh, we do direct action casework targeting bad bosses and landlords on behalf of their workers and then helping those workers take that experience and turn that into um, a foot in the door to help them start actually organizing their coworkers and building towards a place where they can uh, form a union. Uh, so that is uh, where profits for the album go. If I manage to clear the cost of production and uh, you can find it at emmettdoyle.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much, Emmett. Always great to have you on the show and uh, great album. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Nick, thank you. And that's our special interview. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.